But in fact, cryptocurrency is has more similarities with primitive money mm-hmm. than anything else. And, and of course, that makes sense because it is in its primitive stages. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's highly speculative. There's a real question as to how many people agree that it's worth something. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, my guest is Frederick Kaufman. Who is Frederick? He's an English professor by training and profession, has for the past decade focused attention on the fiction that is money. His unorthodox insights into the ways of Wall Street have resulted in numerous magazine articles for publications ranging from Scientific American to Wired to Foreign Policy to Harper's, as well as television appearances on NBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business Network, and invitations to lecture in both the United States and Europe, including an address to the General Assembly and the United Nations. This is his fourth book. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this book. I found it incredibly fascinating, deep of a read, very insightful. And I want to start with the blend of your background and why you wrote this book, but I want to guide you into a specific angle. (laughs) So you're a journalist and educator in writing. You've got a background in literature. It's safe to say you understand literature and how literature is constructed and how narratives are constructed. With that being said, I've heard you say that money is fictional. For many of us who work all day to make that money, might find a little uh, turn in our stomach when we say that money is just a fictional narrative. Can you please explain? Well, look, just because it's a fiction doesn't, doesn't mean it's not real, right? And I think we English professors are always trying to go beyond, you know, the short story and to say, you know, in literature as in life, that's our main game here. And so I think we're always talking about how there are lots of narratives we're telling. There are a lot of fictions. And I guess clearly money is something that's been around not for hundreds of years, not for thousands of years, but for tens of thousands of years. And it's something that we created along with all of our other technologies. So you could just as easily say that money is a, is a technology. But one of the things that really has been missing, I think, from our conversation is that emotional understanding of money, where it comes from in history and our psyche and our need for it. Because in all these societies, no matter how far back you go and no, no matter how, quote unquote, primitive they may appear to be. They have very sophisticated money systems. So clearly it's answering some sort of deep need and some sort of way that we make sense of our lives. And that's what I mean by fiction and narrative. Narratives are what allow us to make sense of our lives, like marriage, for instance, or any number of things we've created. And money is one of those deep and essential fictions. I really appreciate that answer. And We look back on human existence, and for generations, we've preserved cultures by these stories. And I guess what I'm hearing you say is we're doing the same thing with money, but it's interesting how you say it's to meet these underlying emotional needs. And 
psychologists have shown us that we have six basic emotional needs. And I feel like money is a way to uh, obtain some of those, maybe unconsciously or sometimes consciously. So when you look back in your research, what was the first signs of people using money? And do you have any indication that they were trying to use it for meeting one of these underlying emotional needs? Or was it just a utility? What did you learn? Well, the first thing I did was it was unlearn. And of course, the first thing we have to unlearn in the history of money is the fiction that Adam Smith presented in The Wealth of Nations, which is that money begins as barter. And he says that because it works very well within his concept of what's going on in late 18th century English shopkeepers, right? You know, he's actually, you know, at the University of Edinburgh at the time. It's a story he just makes up. But everybody, because he's Adam Smith and he's brilliant and he's written all these books and, and he, you know, kind of the father of modern capitalism and, and, and labor capital ideas, they believed him. And it really wasn't until about 100 years later. Remember, he publishes Wealth of Nations in 1776. But it's not until about 100 years later, in the, near the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, that ethnographers and anthropologists start going out in search of this. And they're like, well, if money began in barter, we should be able to find, quote unquote, primitive societies in New Guinea or Asia or you know, some part of Africa where they have this. And uh, in fact, no cannot find it anywhere. It is clear when these early ethnographers and anthropologists went out, they would show these groups, these indigenous groups, look what we have here, these coins and the money. And they're like, yeah, we know about that stuff. Here's our things that we use symbolically to show any number of, again, emotional ideas such as security or status. In the classic definition of money, it's a, it's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange, and it's a unit of account. But it's also all those things lead into other larger issues of, I say, insurance, security, and also being able to narrate the story of our lives going forward. I mean, really, what is a 401k account? What is a retirement account? But a way of creating a narrative for yourself. So that was the first thing I unlearned. Barter economies only take place in post-money economy, not in pre-money economy. You find barter, for instance, in prisons, right? where you have money in candy or razor blades or illicit drugs, this sort of thing. Or you'll find it in hyperinflated wartime zones where their francs or their marks or their euros, their dollars no longer matter. And so you have an economy made of bread, you know, guns, weapons, this sort of thing. So what was it? And so I spent a lot of time. I never thought as an English professor, I would spend so much time enmeshed in numismatics, right? You know, oh, my Lord. Numismatics is just the history of coinage. So there are all these amazing historians who collect coins from like the Byzantine Empire and, and, the, and so much of history, that's another thing, so much of history we don't realize comes from these numismatists studying coins and you know, who was on them and what they were made of and where the mints were and, and right, this sort of thing. They can understand a lot of politics of it. So I got into numismatics and then I got into archaeology because that's really where the action is, is the really ancient numismatics, you know, the the ancient money from Syria. And then even earlier than that, and the earliest money that they find that these people uncover is from about maybe 40,000 to 60,000 years ago in the hinterlands of coastal Kenya. So let's just think for a second about 40,000 to 60,000 years ago. So we don't have agriculture until about 10,000 years ago. And nor do we have writing until about 10,000 years ago. And of course, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the relationship of agriculture and money and the relationship of writing to money. But here we are in a pre-agricultural time and in a pre-writing time. But these are homo sapiens sapiens. They are, they have the same brains as us. 
I would argue they're even smarter because they don't have these external brains and, and they're, they're not watching TikTok all the time. And they have to know all sorts of things. So these are very smart people and they have very sophisticated funeral rights and they have very sophisticated fashion and they have very sophisticated marriage rights and they have very sophisticated spiritual ideas of the universe. So we're talking about a very advanced kind of culture. And I know it's a little bit of a long way around, but they do have money. And so in the, they find these first, they, they find these tiny little beads that are made of calcium carbonate, about half the size of a penny with a little hole in the middle. And they are full of all these different signs and symbols. And people, as a general rule, believe this is the earliest money, that it was worn around the neck. It was worn on the body as a talisman or as an amulet, something to show status, something to keep people safe something that would have some sort of a spiritual value that would, no matter where you went on a hunt or a travel, you could not only exchange it, but it would keep you safe. It has some sort of almost magical value. It's a, it's a metaphor. I really thought that's interesting. Let's learn more about this. And so the calcium carbonate they discovered, where did it come from? And what they discovered is it's the exact same chemical formula as these huge ostrich eggs. So the first money is made of ostrich eggs and ancient ostrich eggs. Because, you know, the, the ancient black African ostrich has the largest egg of any bird on Earth. It's like a quart and a half in each egg. And it turns out that they were actually using these eggs as, in one of the classic ways people use money, as a store of value. In other words, they were quite literally storing fresh water or fruits or nuts or berries or whatever it was in, in these huge ostrich eggs. And you can see today, not only can you still see these ostrich eggshell necklaces as a sign of wealth, quite literally that that's what they are. You can also see ostrich eggs being used as containers and stores of value. And the last thing I'll say about it is it shows the essential metaphorical quality of money, which is that what was quite literally the store of value becomes a metaphor. It's smashed, then it's worked on, it's wrought, and then it's worn across the body as though if I move around with this on my body, I will have some sort of insurance against all the evils the world might bring against me. And that is generally considered, that's a general consensus for the first money. Wow, that's fascinating. And when I heard about the Adam Smith and money was created before and all these things that I thought were true, I was like, what? And then hearing this, it's, it's just fascinating to see. And in the Kenyan communities, they were engraving the beads as well. You said because writing was only... Uh, around 10,000 years ago. So is this the first sign of writing and money? Well, that, that's a really interesting idea. And this is always what leads me, oddly enough, directly to Bitcoin, which is that the money is, yes, it's encrypted. That, that's the whole idea of money is that there's some sort of a secret encryption process that takes that literal eggshell and moves it into the symbolic realm of insurance, security, and narrative towards the future. And you need to have a form of encryption. And what is encryption? but a symbolic representation. That, that's really it. And so you look at Bitcoin and you look at cryptocurrencies, and one of the essential qualities that they share with money is their encryption. The same as if you look at the physical American dollar or really any currency, any physical currency. And there are so many signs and filigrees and pyramids and eyes and weird signs and symbols. Why? Well, because that's an essential nature of money. It's not only so that it cannot be counterfeited, but it's, it's because these are showing that there's a symbolic quality to this money, that somehow this money stands for, in the case of the U.S. dollar, 
the full faith and credit of the United States. And that is encrypted within each physical dollar. And of course, it doesn't really matter if it's encrypted in a seashell, which is wampum, or if it's encrypted in an eggshell, or if it's encrypted in a dollar, or if it's encrypted in a cryptocurrency, because the key is not the physical or the lack of physical. The key is the secret encryption quality of the symbol. Interesting. We hear people on innovation, that we innovate and we look back to current technologies and we innovate it. So perhaps is this whole cryptocurrency movement just an innovation from 60,000 years ago? <laughs> but what I'm hearing you say is it's relatively the same idea of encrypting. Just now it's on the blockchain and in the internet as opposed onto a, a shell. But the encryption is the key you're talking about. Yeah, the, people would always say to me, I, I was writing this book, they say, you're going to write, you know, read about, you're writing about Bitcoin, you're writing about cryptocurrency. And so, of course, I would say yes. But in fact, cryptocurrency has more similarities with primitive money than anything else. And, and of course, that makes sense because it is in its primitive stages. So, of course, it's highly speculative. There's a real question as to how many people agree that it's worth something. I mean, you know, what is reality but a fiction we all agree on? Like marriage, you know, again, I'll use, I'll use marriage. You know, what, what really weds two people together for eternity? Well, we just kind of all go to the wedding and stand up and agree to it together. And then that's our fiction. And we can even go further with this if you want to, you know, ideas about organized religion, you know, myths and priests and, and, and people who tell us these, you know, what, what some, including, you know, might, might say these are fictions, but they certainly do a good job holding the world together at times or even governments, you know, governments are fiction. So these are narratives. So money is symbolic glue. I really like how you're articulating the, the encryptions or the drawings, even on our current dollars are telling a story. But what I'm hearing you say, they symbolize something. And that's that glue that holds us together, the story, the, the narrative that we're telling ourselves. When you look back at the history, is there a predictable, I don't know if there is a predictable time frame that are socially agreed on narrative of a certain currency exhausts? Yeah, right now there is a lot of question about the future of the dollar and the future of money. And this is because we as a society and really in the world, there's a lot of tension and things seem to many people to be falling apart and crumbling. And we can see this more specifically with money with income inequality. We can see this when you have a lot of people who have a tremendous amount of money and then a lot of people who have nothing at all, right? That's a problem for money. And that's why we should all be concerned about this, and particularly the people with the money should be concerned about it. Because of all of a sudden, people like, you know, that all, all that stuff you have, it's worthless. That's when the revolution happens. And it's always new with the revolutions. And you can see this writ large in the history of what we call reserve currencies. In other words, the currencies that everybody on earth considers to be money. You know, it has, they have the moneyness of money. Today, the global reserve currency is dollar. And it really has been since the end of World War II, or very, in 1944, actually 1945, the, the Bretton Woods Agreement, which pegged all international currencies to the dollar, which was at that point pegged to gold, became the international reserve currency. So a lot of people talk about when will the dollar stop being the international reserve currency? And to your question, Sean, they look to history. And so they look to other global reserve currencies like the pound, which was really the, the global reserve currency for most of the 19th century, and the franc, which was most the global reserve currency of the 18th century. And before then, you know, you've had the thousand-year reign of the Roman denarius, you know, which was the bronze denarius, which really had a really long run, the longest run of anything except for the seashell, 
which actually was really the longest running global reserve currency. Because after, you know, after you have these ostrich egg necklaces, you have these, you have all of these coastal communities, really uh, through Europe, through Asia, through Africa, through New Guinea, and they are trading shells and wampum. And this really is the longest lasting global reserve currency to the extent that just a little bit more than 100 years ago in certain parts of Africa, you could trade wampum for golden German marks. So, and so again, once again, seashells like clamshells, which again shows obviously the symbolic nature of money, that money serves a need that's not necessarily pegged to metal, gold, or a dollar or a national fiat currency, you know, such as a dollar. It's such an extraordinarily deep question in terms of, is it a good thing to have a reserve currency? There's, there's a real question as to, you know, will the Chinese yuan become the international reserve currency? Will fiat currencies die? Will we just have bitcoins? These are very large questions. It's not always in a, in a country's best interest to have the reserve currency. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about 1971, when the United States went off the gold standard and Nixon got on television and said the dollar is no longer pegged to gold. And everybody thought, not everybody, but a lot of people, including many people very, very high up in his administration, thought, you know, the world was going to end, basically, and the Russians were going to take over. But of course, the people who really understand the symbolic nature of money, most of all, are the bankers and the people on Wall Street who play that symbolic game all day long, all the time. And the moment Nixon floated the dollar that Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had the greatest percentage increase in its history. I, in the book, I say money wants to be free. Money wants to be free from any captivity it has in a substance, in a shell, in a metal. It wants to be a free-floating symbolic entity. And as I say, the people who understand this most of all are Wall Street people. They are really the greatest poets of our time. I read that quote in your book and I, I chuckled. They're the masters of, of symbolism in a way that us English professors can only hope to shatter. In your title, you use the word control and manipulate. Is their poetry have any outcomes of manipulation and control? Is that where those words came from? Actually, yeah. There, there are a couple of things here. One is There are a couple of other reserve currencies. One is grain. One is livestock. Let's just start there for a second, and then we'll get into this whole other, even more disturbing, although farming isn't that disturbing. But, you know, some people would say that farming is kind of disturbing, that this kind of enclosing and monoculture come under a lot of pressure, certainly on, you know, with like food, you know, global food justice and what it's doing to the environment and this sort of thing. And, and farming, again, dates back about a thousand years. And imagine you're walking along, you're just a plain old run-of-the-mill hunter-gatherer following the flocks picking some berries and you see some guy who's fenced in an area. It's like, what are you doing in there? And he's like, I'm just staying here and I've got goats. I got sheep. I've got my grain and I got 18 wives. I am making my own money. And that's why they call, you know, farming Bitcoin. That's the idea is that for the first time he was creating his own narrative by planting the crops that were going to come up and, you know, when they were going to come up, by making those animals go back and forth in straight lines with the plow, by choosing which ones he would eat, choosing which ones would procreate, right? Using his children, balancing his children with the idea of more labor, more mouths to feed, right? And so even today, if you, you know, and certainly in, in Canada, this is very much even more known in the United States, is, is grain is cash, 
that when you look at the great commodity markets, when you look at farmers in the Midwest or in Canada, and when they have all their wheat in the silo, the farmer doesn't say, I have wheat. The farmer says, I have cash, because that it is the exact same thing. And so I spend a lot of time in, in the book talking about the violence of domestication and that there is a violence in language too, which turns something into something that it's not. The great example of this is in the birth of written language, which happens about 10,000 years ago with a very, very rich king, not a sea empire, but an inland empire, King Ashurbanipal, Assyria. And he's so rich that he had all these accounts. He didn't need to work anymore because they have farming economy, they have livestock economy. And so he has a whole priestly caste, he has an accounting caste, and then he has laborers who give him taxes in grain and in livestock and in women. And so his accountants, you know, because there's so much of this stuff and they have to keep track of it, they're making little clay ornaments of, let's say, a little bushel of wheat or a little head with horns for a cow, right? And then a guy whose name we'll never know, a, a brilliant poet, realize it. And they're making this out of wet clay, the big pile of wet clay. And this guy realizes, hey, I'm tired of making these silly little baskets one after the other. All I have to do is push it into the wet clay again and again and again. And all of a sudden we went from three dimensions to two dimensions. And we went from quote unquote reality to symbolism. And that's cuneiform. That's, that's proto-cuneiform. That is the first writing. When people found cuneiform in like the late 19th century and they started trying to translate it, all these philologists is what they were called. They were masters of language in the 19th century. They were trying to translate it and they were so psyched. They were like, oh my God, we're going to know the great epic of King Ashurbanipal. We're going to know all the ancient myths of the Assyrians. We're gonna know. And they finally translated it, you know, this ancient language it took them about 25, 30 years. And all it was, was like the great King Ashurbanipal has 20 sheep. The great King Ashurbanipal has 40 wives. That was it. But that's deep. It shows that the first writing was the money. And in fact, when people look at the history of, let's say, the letter A or Aleph in Hebrew or the Greek version or the Phoenician version, they keep on going further and further back. They find that it is originally the shape of a bull's head with horns. If you think about that bull's head with horns, you kind of put it to the side, kind of a proto A. Yeah. And so I always say A is for money. Oh yeah. Is that why they, and talk about the bull markets? Yeah, of course. I, no, no doubt. No, no yeah. doubt. I haven't figured out the bear yet. It's fascinating. The history of money and we, we spend this, we save it. We think about this stuff every day, but none of us, well, I can't speak for everybody for myself. I rarely think of the, the vast history and meaning. And what I'm really hearing is this symbolism, like, Money, this symbol, and it's really, really, really interesting. Do you talk about apocalypse in the book? And does that have the notion of apocalypse coming or thinking of it? Does that influence the meaning that people were prescribing to money throughout the history? Yeah, I thought one of the more weird things about the history of money, which is we're talking about narratives. And of course, one of the narratives that is popular is, is the narrative of the apocalypse, is the narrative of the end of the world. Many cultures share this narrative. And, you know, you cross-culturally, you look at cross-cultural myths, and you will see that in almost every culture, they have, the, you know, what will happen at the end? 
but really the king, the, the people who were, got most into it and had the most elaborate narrative of the end of days were, of course, the great Catholics, right? Because, you know, after the fall of Rome in the medieval period, in, in the early medieval period, it was like the defining narrative. The world was crumbling. And so for them and for those priests and for those monks, this was the key narrative, the narrative of the end of days, the fast approaching apocalypse. And the dark ages are generally people's minds are perceived to be a, a time when there was not a lot of money and not a lot of innovation in money. But again, this was not the case. It was kind of like the, that myth of, of barter. Not the case at all. And, and in fact, among the scholars of money in the Middle Ages, there is this idea of the commercial revolution, that modern money is born during the time of the Middle Ages. And this is clear when we see the relationship between the Catholic Church and the banks and how the, first, the largest banks, the, the origin of the Medici Bank and the great Florentine banks are very closely associated with the Catholic Church. Now, of course, the, the, the very famous thing people know about it is no usury, right? We're not allowed to charge interest. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. This one idea has kind of obliterated all the nuances. In fact, so much of the wealth of the Catholic Church during, that they accumulated during the Middle Ages had to do with lines of credit. It had to do with mortgaging properties and really the entire creation of a credit economy. They kept their word, didn't they? Yeah. And so this idea of a credit economy and, a, for instance, the idea of a mortgage, and this gets back to the idea of the, the apocalypse. If you look at the word closely, there's a hidden word within mortgage, and that's the word mort, M-O-R-T, which means debt. And so think about how, if, I don't know if your listeners or your viewers are, are have, how many have mortgages, but if, if you get a mortgage, obviously you know that what you're buying is a series of payments that are calculated from the end coming back to you. In other words, you know the interest payments, you know the last payment. And this is why finance, there's another hidden word in finance, fin, F-I-N, like the end, you see it at the end of a book, fin. Finance based on the apocalyptic ideas of the Middle Ages is the science of calculation based on counting from the end back to the beginning. And so this, if you think about so much of your savings and your retirement accounts, and how you get paid and how you calculate what you're going to have at the end of the year and taxes, you're counting from what you will have. You know, it's kind of, it's what do they call it? Mark to market. You're, you're counting from the end towards you as opposed to from you towards the end. And this was the great innovation in the narrative of the world in medieval times, which is that previously people had, saw, had kind of seen themselves kind of wandering towards this mystery of the future. But if you lock in that future, right? Think about a futures contract. You're locking in the date. Think about an options contract. This is the beginnings of modern finance. If you lock in that future and start counting back to the present, okay, you have a different kind of story. You have a different kind of narrative. And when that symbolism of the future back to the present, that expiration date, think about the apocalypse, don't think apocalypse, think expiration date, then all of a sudden you're opening up this vast areas of creativity for what you can do with, with money, with that symbolic entity, when you know when it's going to expire, when finally everybody's going to pay up. Wow. And if I recall from the book, or maybe I read it online, at this time, the Catholic Church was one of the most profitable and, in a sense, corporation at that time? Well, first, yeah, they were the richest group on the face of the earth. 
And in fact, the idea of the modern corporation is a Catholic innovation. Pope Innocent IV, I'm sure we're all familiar with, we've read his works deeply. Yeah, I came across Pope Innocent IV because he is the first one who sees the Catholic Church as a corporate body. Again, another narrative we have, the corporation. Oh, mm-hmm. Apple is a corporation. What is a corporation? And so there's been a lot of thought in corporate law as to what really is the essential nature of this. And of course, corporations are fictions, as we know. There's, you know, you have a board of directors, then you have the shareholders who are some sort of issued this paper, they control it. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's a weird little agglomeration of things. Why does that paper go up and down in value? And it was Pope Innocent IV, who at one of the great Lateran councils, it was actually, the, oddly enough, it was the same Lateran council when they decided that the, that the cardinals wear red hats. And they decided that any damage done to any of the properties of the church was damage done to the church as a whole and thus to the body of Christ. The corp in corporation, there's a corpse, there's a body in the corporation. It's a symbolic body of Christ in the Catholic church. So if you default on a mortgage of your monastery in France, you have messed up the body of Christ and we can excommunicate you. And this idea is like mind-blowing. And everybody's like, yeah, I can do something with that. I can do something with that symbolic entity. And so you start seeing in Italy in like the 9th, 10th, 11th century, people creating their own corporations in which they actually take like 10 or 12 men will kind of take these weird marriage vows with each other, not sexual marriage vows, but business marriage vows that we we now are. And there, there are different methods. Like one is called like all in the same boat. One is called eating the same bread. These are the translations. And they, be, they create these corporations where some people just give money that others go out and then they come back with more money after peregrinations of a year or two. And so, yeah, the modern corporation, the ideas are from the Middle Ages. And that is the great commercial revolution of Western money happens in the, in the Middle Ages. And that blew my mind. And I, I thought this book was going to take me a couple of years to write. And it ended up that I spent a couple of years just learning my medieval. Yeah, Fred, you can just feel the depth of knowledge that you have around all of this. And the read is is fascinating. I, I'm, I'm sure we have to read it four or five more times. I couldn't help but pull out, again, I'm going to go to the subtext, a history of currency's power to enchant, control, and manipulate. I was extremely curious about that. I already talked about them, control and manipulate. But I want to I want to make an observation, whether this is intentional about you or not. But you've written a few other books. And in your bio, you talked about the United Nations. I forget what, what exactly you did with them. But when we look at the 17 sustainable goals for the United Nations, one is zero hunger and no poverty. And you talk about these big corporations just right now that were generating all this revenue. We talked to the Catholic Church. Now we've got these real corporations. Not that they weren't, but these enormous corporations that are going to controlling the 1% pawns, as you call it in the book. Is there a link towards Fred's thinking or interest why he wrote a book called Bet the Farm, which is on hunger? And I'll let you explain more. And then this book on the money plot, which deals with elements of control and manipulation. Yeah, thank you for that question. That's really a beautiful question. And, And yeah, my interest in money came from my previous involvement in the global food justice and, and the idea of the UN basically saying everybody has a right to food. That doesn't mean everybody has a right to a filet mignon every night, but it means that nobody on earth, you know, we 
we have enough food for everybody. That's clear. We have enough food to feed like five times the number of people on Earth. And the problem is not having enough food. It's, and again, this is a whole other podcast, how much the food costs and how it's distributed, how people have money to buy uh, food. The relationship is that in 2008 and 2011, you had inflation, just like we're seeing today. So this is relevant today. You have inflation of commodities. Commodities like price of livestock, the price of food, the price of gas oil, this sort of thing. So it drove a lot of people into poverty and hunger. I was fascinated. I was At the time, I was working for Harper's Magazine, and I got very interested in trying to figure out how does a bushel of wheat get its price? I, I spent a year, again, trying to understand the futures market because that's where it's priced. It's priced on these huge, large international commodity markets. That's how wheat gets its price. And it's a futures market. In other words, people are at the farm. They're betting on the future price of wheat, if it'll go up or it'll go down. It took me a long time to understand what was going on there because you want to make money in the futures market. Fred Kaufman will now tell you. Okay, so let's say you think that the price of wheat, you think it's high now and that in a month or so, it will go down, okay? In other words, it's high now, you think it's going to go down. So again, this is a narrative that you're creating. You're creating a narrative, again, about the future based on what you think the end is. You know, there are all these things are coming into play now on a symbolic level, things we've been talking about, because the futures market is kind of the playing field of money. And so it's like, okay, since wheat is now selling at 10, just call it 10, and I think it's going to go down to five, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sell 10,000 bushels of it. And it doesn't matter if you have it or not. You just go to the futures market and you sell 10,000 at 10. Basically, you sell $100,000 worth. Yeah. And then you're right. It goes down to five. And so all you really do then is cancel out your position. Instead of selling, you buy it. So then you, you buy 10,000 you know, for 50,000 and you have made $50,000. <laughs> you have made $50,000 by selling wheat you don't have then by something before you even have it, then buying it back, not to actually have any, but to cancel. And, I, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, that's absurd. That's not real. That's a fiction. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, money's a fiction. Money's a fiction. And so I started talking. So, you know, I live in New York City, and I know a lot of bankers and people like that, and economists. And I would sit down to dinner, and I was like, you know what I realized? And what, Fred? i say, money's a fiction. And they'd be like, yeah, we know that. And I was like, what? I'm like, yeah, we know that. We know that. And I was like, whoa. And so then that's what started the book. I was like, well, if money is a fiction, I thought, and that was the one idea of the book. The one idea of the book is that if money is a fiction, it should act like one. And that's the one thing I know as an English professor that maybe the bankers don't know. And that maybe if you're out there and you feel as though you don't really understand money or you'd like to learn more about money, I felt that this book would help empower you in the sense that maybe you like to read, maybe you were a humanities major, and that if you can understand how plots work and how characters work and how narratives work and how symbols work and metaphors work, oh my God, you're going to be a better banker than the bankers. And that set me off onto this road. So, so interesting. In your words, you talk about the 1% controlling the pawns, and perhaps these are the 1% creating a narrative that we follow. <laughs> But I, I pulled out a quote from your book, and it says, they say disruption is the key to progress, but there are hazards and the stakes are high. If we cannot decide how the 1% are controlling and containing the fiction within new boundaries, they will increasingly settle for themselves. If we run the risk of being pawns and shells of ourselves, we'll become other people's money. 
Yeah, that we'll become other people's money. What I alluded to before is that there is always the danger of us becoming the shells, of us becoming the pawns. And I am not some sort of raging communist or socialist. I'm just a capitalist, and I believe in the capitalist system. But it's being abused, and I'm concerned that it's teetering right now because of the, the vast income inequality. And there is a real history, clearly, to people being used as money. My second chapter is all about you know people being used as money. And the classic example is this kind of unsettling idea of the trophy wife. And I spend a lot of time on the history of women being used as money. And I start in the 1980s, you know, I start kind of at the end in that the Wall Street go-go days of Gordon Gecko and Greed is Good. And the trophy wife being, you know, what every CEO deserves to have at his side. And I started looking at the history of marriage and how women were often the element of the exchange in marriage because of their ability to coalesce a narrative towards the future around them. And that all the accoutrements of marriage, all of the processions and the outfits and the, the lines, that this all seemed to be to be, again, like an act, like theater. And that all these things were symbolic of what was truly being exchanged and what the true money was. And that was the woman's body. And so there is a real history then about exploitation, and there is a real history about injustice and using you know, human bodies, considering them as tools or something else. That's terrifying history in some ways. And certainly when we add that to other systems of exploitation, racial exploitation or slavery and stuff like that, or imperial exploitation, then you get kind of a, a rather sobering view of money and where it comes from. So I spend a lot of time talking about probably from a feminist perspective, what that money is and how it's coalesced in, in certain darker ways. You know, but it wasn't just women either. I mean, it, during the Middle Ages, it was a regular thing for people to mortgage their kids. Thomas Hardy's mayor of Casterbridge, you know, if you read the opening scene, he auctions off his wife. That's the first thing that happens. And this was a thing. Like, if you wanted, you could just auction your wife off. And it's disturbing. We don't really want to talk about it. We don't really want to talk about certain ex essential exploitations that are inherent within, you know, symbolism doesn't mean good. You know, we can use symbolism for anything. And right. those symbols work to empower and disempower. And so I think it's important that we understand that money is that locus of power and disempowerment and exploitation and also justice. And so, for instance, you know, universal basic income. A lot of people are, you know, very upset about this. And other people are like, yeah, it's a pretty good idea. I know both my kids are like, great idea, dad. Universal basic income. Yeah, this would not have flown, you know, like the Andrew Yang candidacy of 2020 with universal basic income in the United States in a democratic field. He would have been labeled a communist and just thrown out. But things are changing because, as I say, there's this very real sense among people that the playing field is not even, that it's totally unfair and that not only in terms of global food justice, but there has to be some sort of global money justice. Once again, that doesn't mean everyone's a millionaire, but everybody needs enough money to survive in some sort of a basic, decent way with lighting, indoors, with a big, you know, that's an important thing. And what the economists who look in this area find is that again and again and again, when this happens, when you have programs like universal basic income or social security or safety nets or, or you know, quote unquote food stamps 
the population rates do not go up. In fact, they go down because people are not desperate. They don't start having tons and tons of children in order to kind of, you know, know that their story will continue. And we can see that it's not going to be a problem in population rates. And it's not going to be a problem, I don't think, in terms of our view of what money is. It's not going to vitiate the dollar because what we're seeing is again and again with universal basic income, all that money gets spent almost immediately. It's not hoarded. It's not taken out of the system. It circulates. So again, that is what brought me from you know, food justice to money justice and to this narrative. I really appreciate you focusing on both of those, the food insecurity and now income insecurity, because yeah, it's a real, real issue. And just as food without enough money, life is hard. And you talk about these 1%, they have a, an easier route. If we look at the starting blocks of the 100 meter race, they're almost starting at the 75 or almost at the end of the starting line. And I just appreciate your approach on that because sometimes these things could just be left alone and we could talk about how to make money. But I think it's important people like you are pointing these really real important things in our world. Well, thank you, Sean, for inviting me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I asked this question. So in the last couple of minutes, you mentioned you have two kids. So if you are sitting at end of life and you're looking at beautiful New York City, an ocean, wherever brings you peace, and you decided to take the finance word and fin and write the end of what the narrative would be for your kids to live a happy, healthy life with money. What would be the theme of that letter for your kids to read that, okay, here's a breadcrumb for us to follow to live this happy, healthy life with money? That's such an interesting question. And it's not only for my kids, but I talk to my, my students a lot who are, they're writing students, they're journalists. And so they're looking at uh, a future in which they're not going to be bankers. They're not going to be lawyers. They're going to be journalists. They're maybe not going to have so much money. They want to be writers, you know? And so I, I always say to them, you know, money is an essential part of what you're doing and you have to figure it out. You know, you can't deny it. It's a reality and you have to think, you know, there are many paths to a future that's secure and that's happy, even if you're not making tons and tons of money. So, you know, my son, for instance, is a, he's a professional musician. You know, and he travels around the country with his band and they're very successful. But is he really going to make money like a banker? But that's probably unlikely, right? And so people who are artists and everybody, you have to think about it and focus on it. And really, that's kind of what we're doing here is not be, you know, not deny it, not be afraid of it, not shun it, not hate it. But by the same token, not to embrace it as the be all end all. So I think once again, we, we have to place it in its proper, we have to put it in its proper place. We have to understand, like, like we can't overvalue it. We can't undervalue it. Let's understand it. Let's understand what it is and then go forward from there. Thank you. Well, Fred, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have a website or place to go for your book? Amazon, that's where I got it. Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. It would be great. The money plot. And, and thank you, Sean. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. I really enjoy having these conversations with wonderful people. If you have any suggestions or recommendations for future guests or themes that we should focus on, please send us an email. I'd love to hear from you. But I just want to say thank you. Thank you to you for listening. Until next week, have yourself a good one.